0: Vamos a, a dar gracias a Dios porque estamos a, aquí hoy presentes y también dar gracias por su gran sacrificio que hizo en, en la cruz por nosotros. Y vamos a hablar por el pan. Bendito Dios todopoderoso que estás en los cielos, en la tierra y en todo lugar, Señor, te damos gracias por un día más. Te damos gracias por la oportunidad de estar aquí hoy, de convivir, de estar juntos, de poder participar en, en este... En este este momento, Señor, poder partir el pan que representa tu cuerpo que fue crucificado en aquella cruz por causa nuestra. Te lo agradecemos en el bendito nombre de tu Hijo Cristo, Jesús Padre.
1: When a dish is broken, what do we do with it? We throw it in the trash and sweep away the pieces. When a person is broken, what do we do with it? Society sweeps them aside to marginalization. We are all broken. The only difference most of the time is how successful we are at hiding the cracks. We use money to replace broken parts or lies to paint over them. We glue the pieces together so that no one notices because if we can't, society will sweep us away with condemnation. In Japanese culture, there's a practice called Kintsugi that when a dish is broken, it is repaired with a glue made of gold. The cracks of the dish are highlighted and made visible because the story of the crack is the history of the dish. As Christians, our cracks can be valuable because they show we've made mistakes and learn from them. They give us empathy to those who have similar cracks because we've fallen on that same floor and been glued back together. This communion meal represents us coming together as a community, broken and glued together alike. Let it serve as a celebration of what we can accomplish together when we let Christ be the glue that holds our pieces together. Lord, guide our hearts and our minds to find the cracks in our own lives, to show those cracks to others so that they can heal and so that we can use those cracks to heal others, to help them to find their way of being whole and to being a part of our our whole Christian family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Vamos a orar por el el jugo de David. De igual manera, señor, agradecemos aquel gran sacrificio, agradecemos um, aquel derramamiento de sangre que que sufrió tu hijo en aquella cruz por causa nuestra. Sabemos que Todos estamos rotos y sabemos que todos necesitamos reparación. Sabemos que necesitamos de ti, Señor, para que tú nos unas y tú nos renueves a cada día, a cada instante. Bendice este, este, este jugo que representa la sangre de Jesucristo Cristo Jesús. Y en nombre de él te lo pido, Padre.
1: Lord, we share this bread and fruit of the vine as a a way of remembering Christ's sacrifice for us so that the blood of Christ fills in the cracks in our own lives and help us to share that love with others and to show them how to glue their pieces back together and not to sweep them away with condemnation or judgment.
2: Stay. would please be standing. At this time, we will dismiss our children to children's worship and junior church, and we will also dismiss those who wish to hear a lesson in Spanish. my Strength when I am weak, you are the treasure that I seek, you are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I be a fool, you are my. Yeah. I
3: told you last week that um, one of the things I do each year is when our kids and teens go to camp, I I preach that week on the camp theme uh, so you can kind of know what, if your kid or your family has someone there, uh, what they're hearing and learning. And uh, we just got back from Camp Rock Creek. Really, really recently ago, and uh, and I am mostly awake, and so we'll see. Uh, someone asked me, like, So, are you going to be in zombie mode today? And I said, You know, I thought I would be, but I really like the, the Soul Quest theme. Uh, and so, I'm excited to be teaching, talking to you today about, uh, about scarred faith is the theme at Soul Quest this week. So, our high schoolers. Uh, and some others, some friends, some stragglers, we picked up a few others that are uh, kind of carpooling with our group up to York, Nebraska this morning. They left uh, about an hour and a half ago. Uh, so be praying that they have safe travels this morning as uh, they are approaching Kansas. And, uh, and Nathan also just left camp, so pray that Kansas doesn't put him to sleep. It can do that to you uh, when you're driving. Um, so uh, they're headed up there, and their theme uh, this year is Scarred Faith, and it's based on a book. Uh, by an author named Josh Ross. Josh is a a preacher and writer, uh, and he wrote a book. I started reading the book earlier this week during some of my free time at camp uh, and just loved it. I thought it was great. We ended up buying a copy of the book for all of our families that are sending kids up to York, Uh, So for those of you who have a kid uh, at SoulQuest this week, I encourage you uh, to get into that book and be reading about his story, Scarred Faith, because that's what your kids are going to be hearing about this week, and it's going to provide opportunities for you to engage with them uh, when they come back. Uh, I'm excited that he's going to be really challenging our kids, our teens, uh, as they're forming faith. You know, one of the things he talks about in his book uh, is that you can keep your kids from asking hard questions about God until they go to college or leave your house. And then they're going to ask them. And how much better is it that we be people who encourage our kids to ask the hard questions with us and of us, uh, and that we ask them the hard questions, and that together we kind of do that wrestling work of who God is and how he works with us in our homes before. And so our kids are going to be doing a lot of that this week because we want our children to not just have our faith, we don't want our kids to say, hey, I prayed to my parents, God, I hope this works out. I prayed to my grandparents, God, I hope this works out. We want our children not just to have a faith in God that is their own, but we want it to be a deep faith and a rooted faith. And not just for our children, but every one of us needs to be able to, to aspire for ourselves to have a deep faith. And when it comes to growing faith in, in our lives, there's really only three ways to get it. There are some individuals who God just gives them the gift of faith. And, and for some, it is that, that they just come by it uh, from God's good gifting, uh, that it's just a spiritual gift that they have, that, that just very naturally to them becomes the ability to have uh, incredible and deep confidence and loyalty and commitment to God, uh, that, that questioning isn't a part of their life. And that is a deep faith in its own way. And there are others who develop spiritual habits and disciplines and practices that day after day form in them a faith that is deeply rooted. And you can acquire deep faith through the exercise of your spirit in the same way that that you can exercise your body and become physically strong. You can, through regular good spiritual habits, become faithfully strong. Uh, That's there. But for so many of us, the deepest moments of faith, the times that we gain uh, the most uh, rich elements of our faith, doesn't come inside the walls of a classroom or an auditorium. It comes uh, when our faith journey hits a bump. It comes when we go through a rough patch. It comes when we're in crisis. So often, the deepest parts of our faith are formed in hospital rooms and cemeteries, courtrooms, in silent houses that used to be filled with voices and laughter. It's in the moments of darkness and, and grief that God so often shows up in ways that we didn't even know we needed until the moment we needed Him the most, that God's present in that moment. And it's when He gets us through those valleys of the shadow of death that we become people who trust the shepherd. Do we become people whose faith is so rich? Because if he can get us through that, then he can get us through anything. And if he can get us through the dark days, then the good days are so much easier. But what we find is that that faith is resilient. That that's a faith that is overcome. It is, however, a scarred faith. We don't ask for scars. We don't ask for the pain that comes with the injury. We don't ask for the the suffering that so often is part of our faith journey. But what's incredible is how much God uses those moments of pain and suffering to be the moments where he grows and creates new faith in us. That he gives us new spiritual abilities and a new ability to connect with him and connect with others. And so It's certainly a good thing to be able to name all 66 books of the Bible by the age of five, but not if you never have a meal with someone from another race by the age of 16. It's a good thing if you can get a gold medal in Bible Bowl, but not if you've never shaken the hand of someone in a soup kitchen. It's great if you can name all of the plagues and all of the apostles, but not if you don't know the names of your neighbors and some of their needs and concerns. There is a richness to faith that requires us to connect with brokenness, that that we need to be able to go to people who are hurting and suffering and say to them, the brokenness that you're experiencing should not lead you to question God. It should ultimately lead you to a greater resolve and faith in God that it's often that when we go to where the darkness is, that we have the opportunity to really be a brighter light. Uh, In the book, Josh recounts one occasion where he was counseling a man who uh, was working in an alcohol addiction recovery program, and part of the plan is you have to confess your sins. And he had some sins that he couldn't go to the people who he had hurt, and so he went and found a minister who he could talk to. And after a while, he said to the man, Hey, listen here. Do you believe that God has the power to redeem you? Do you believe that God can rewrite the next 30 years of your life? Do you believe that God has the power to usher you into a better story? A story that will be so beautiful, so glorious, so redeeming, that your life will bear witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Certainly, you're somebody with physical and emotional scars, but do you believe that God can redeem your scars? The man said, is there really a God who can redeem these scars? Is there really a God who can go into my past and redeem these scars? So often, the shame of our scars And the hurt of our scars and the woundedness that comes from the the, the pain of our past makes us think, yeah, I know that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save me. And I know that it's it's good enough uh, for other people. But some of the things I'm hiding deep down inside can't be just washed away, can't be just cleaned up, can't be just healed. And we want them to go away. We want to forget. We want to just put them in the past. And so we'll go to God and we'll say, God, take away even my memory of the things I've done in the past. Take away the shame of what I've done in the past. Take away the hurt of the the things that I've been through and the things that I've experienced. Make this feeling stop. And what God so often wants us to know, and I think there's two things in those moments. The first one is, your sins and your shame are not so unique and so impressive that the cross of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to save even you. When you hold on to all of that suffering and you refuse to let it go, what you're telling Jesus is, thanks for dying on the cross for me, but what you did isn't enough for me to give you this. And So we hold on to it. And we say, my stuff's too bad. My stuff's too bad. And the other thing we do is when we say we can't really grow into the fullest version of being a Christ follower that God's calling us to be because of our past, our hurt, our pain, our suffering. When we say, I, until I am all the way whole, I don't have anything to offer the kingdom of God. When we let that be our story, what God wants to say is, I'm not going to erase your scars. I want you to use them for my glory. I'm not going to take away what your experiences. I want you to give me your experiences for my purposes in the kingdom. I want you to let this become part of your ministry for me. Don't don't ask me to take your scars away. Ask me to use them for my glory. And it's a totally different way of thinking about the scars in our lives. And some of them are spiritual, and some of them are physical, and some are relational. And all of these different ways that we are wounded become opportunities for God to create new things in us. And to use our suffering for His purpose. When we look over and over again at the stories of Jesus interacting with broken people along the roads of Galilee and Judea, what we see is that he is constantly trying to get us to take seriously life outside of the temple, outside of the church, that he wants us not to get so focused on, on worship, but so focused on our life in the, along the streets and our life outside where the people are. And we've spent the 2,000 years since then trying to figure out how we can get all of life in the world to come into the church. And Jesus is constantly saying, no, get out there. That's where faith happens. That's where your light needs to be shining. That's where the kingdom of God needs to be going is out into the world, not trying to draw the world into this space. We need to go where the people are living in uh, suffering, living in poverty, living in uh, a life of, of being separated from God. That's where God wants us to go. And it's where Jesus goes over and over again. This is why when churches do bring a friend to church campaigns, it's easier than saying, go meet your neighbor and tell them about Jesus. It's easier to give someone an invitation card to come hear the preacher talk than it is to go and tell someone the reason that you believe in Jesus when you meet them uh, at a coffee shop or a restaurant or at work. It's easier to do faith in here than it is to do it out there. And it is one of the things that makes this room special is that this room has not been for the 70 years that it's been here. And I do mean this physical auditorium that we're sitting in right now. This room for almost 70 years now has been a place that hasn't just been for people whose lives are cleaned up and perfect. This room has uh, been a place where prostitutes have come to worship Jesus. This room has been a place uh, where the homeless come and find that they can feel like they're at home. This is a church where uh, children who have been abused have been able to come and find a father who really loves them. And it's where people who have abused children have come to find accountability and a second chance. This is a room uh, where alcoholics and drug addicts have come to find healing and a new life, a new story where God paints a totally new canvas about how the future can be better than their past. I'm one of the ones whose parents had their funerals in this room. Many of you have had your loved ones' last stories told around caskets in this room. Suffering has happened here. On this very stage, people have made vows that didn't ever last a lifetime. And then we've had times where we pulled together people that that were in recovery after those vows were broken, and we provide healing for them and mercy and grace for them, and they come into this place and worship together. Week in and week out, people uh, whose lives have been shattered, whose lives have been broken, who have a faith that's filled with scars and who sometimes walk with spiritual limps, come into this room and break bread together. And we do it with, with a richness and a deepness that we know we've walked through the tough stuff. We've wrestled with God in the moments where we didn't know where faith would come from. There's a moment uh, in Josh's story uh, where he reaches a, a, a crisis of faith and he says, walking out of that hospital when all was, seemed lost, Uh, His mother just kept asking, what do we believe? What do we believe now? And his dad just kept saying, we still believe the tomb was empty. We still believe the tomb was empty. And when you're in the pit, when you're in the dark night of the soul, where you're just saying, I don't know where my next step is, I don't know what tomorrow holds. My life has lost its foundation. If you're someone whose faith is is scarred, but you can still cling to that, the tomb is still empty, then the faith that resolves and results from those moments is deeper and it's richer. And over and over again, it's people who have scarred faith that Jesus is using because scars make us ask questions. Uh, physical scars do too. Uh, when you have a scar, uh, there's a story behind it. And you get to tell it every now and then. Um, I almost got onto a story about someone else's scars that's not relevant to this all. My brother has a scar on his forehead. It's because he got hit by a golf club. That's an interesting story. You can ask him sometime. The most important detail is I didn't do it. So there you go. <laughs> Um, I've got a scar on the back of my head because I fell off of a bunk bed and and cut the back of my head on on the way down. You can only see it right after a really, really short haircut. Um, We all have scars. We all have scars. And some are physical and some are not. But scars get us to ask the question, how did that get there? What caused it? Why did it happen? How did you survive that injury? Who helped you to recover What was recovery like? How has it changed you? And where was God when it hurt the most? The answers that we give to all of those questions become the things that deepen our faith, become the things that become our ministry and become our testimony, that give us a story to tell that others are interested in hearing, because scars make us ask the tough questions. Nobody asks for them. Nobody asked for them, and, and that's important. Anyone that carries these, these stories of their past brokenness will tell you, I would not give up my loved one to have this story and this ministry and this deeper faith. I would trade it for the lost loved one right now. I wouldn't go through that suffering to get what I've got, but now that I have experienced that suffering, I'm so thankful that it wasn't for nothing. I'm so thankful that God redeemed my brokenness and turned it into something beautiful and something fruitful. I'm so glad that God took my crumpled up page and that He made it fresh and He's writing a new story that I didn't want, but now that I'm living it, He's using for good. That's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. The scars that we have come in all forms and in all ways God finds ways to redeem them, the pages of Scripture are filled with these kinds of stories. In John's Gospel, there's the woman who's, uh, the woman at the well. Jesus goes up to her and he says, uh, "Hey, listen, I know your story. Uh, you've been married to five men, and the one you're with now is not your husband." And we talk a lot about the shame that comes with that, but we sometimes forget the scars. We don't know how many of those were deaths. We don't know how many were divorces. We don't have, know how many of them involved uh, adultery or some kind of a scandal. But what we know is that she's hurt a lot. She's hurt for so long that at this point in the relationship she has with this man, she's not even bothering with marriage because the scars of her past are too much to live into that faithful form of relationship. She's very, very broken. She's a one-woman walking scandal. And even if we imagine the, the, the most pure form of her past story, that it is, in fact, that she is a, a five-time uh, widow, that she was faithful in every moment, and every moment her husbands were faithful to her, but they continue to die. In this world, if you lose five husbands, it's because God knows what you did wrong. And she's got shame and scars and pain uh, just piled up all through her history. And then she goes and she meets this man at a well, and he offers her living water. And he reveals to her, the first person ever, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And she goes from there back into town. She leaves the well and she goes into town. And she starts telling everyone, I've met a man who knows everything I've ever done. And think about this. If the most boring person in town who goes to work every day and has a normal family life and who's living their life out in all the normal ways, walks around the local village and says, I've met someone who knows everything I've ever done, wouldn't everyone in the village go, who cares? Not that interested. We all know everything you've ever done. You do the same thing every day, Monday through Friday. You rest on Saturday. That's how it works. But this woman goes around and says, I met a man who knows everything I've ever done. And everyone says, whoa, this lady is the local tabloid headline. This lady's a one-woman gossip machine. This is the woman that we're talking all the time about. Hey, what do you think she's done wrong? What do you think her story is? What's she going to do next? She's like a chaos factory in motion. Someone knows everything she's ever done. Let's get over there. It's time for the show. You see... God is redeeming the scars of her past so that this village, this Samaritan village, will go to the well to see what's going on. Her testimony is powerful because of her scars. Without them, it's nothing. And so the whole village comes out to meet Jesus. And what you read over and over again in the Gospels is that the people of God are struggling to figure out who this man Jesus is. But already at the beginning of John's Gospel, because of this woman's scars, an entire Samaritan village believes Jesus and believes who he is, is who he claims to be, and they have faith in him almost before anybody else. Why? Because of scarred faith and the power that God has when we give him our stories and our past use for his good purpose. In Mark's gospel, there's a man who uh, was known as Legion, and Legion was literally covered in scars. You see, they would chain him and put him in the cemetery because he was so filled with so many demons that, that he was constantly being violent towards others and towards himself. And this guy, when they encountered him, would have been a scarred, bloody mess because of how tormented he was by these demons that possessed him. When Jesus said to him, what is your name? He says, we are legion. He's lost his own identity to the demons. He doesn't give his birth name that his parents gave him. He doesn't give uh, any kind of an indicator of who he was before the demons. All he is, is his suffering. It's his entire identity. Jesus at that moment casts the demons out and they go into a herd of pigs that rush off into the sea and drown. And the villagers that see this are terrified because of the power Jesus has. And when they approach and they see this man that they've been afraid of, so afraid of that they've been chaining him in the cemetery for years, when they see this happening, they they come up and they see this man sitting at Jesus' feet in the posture of a disciple of this rabbi. And it describes him as sitting there, In his right mind he's become uh, himself again all the suffering has passed And, and and when we picture Legion sitting there in his right mind we picture him all cleaned up but he's not he's still covered in the wounds of his past this is a man who is covered in literal physical wounds that are still healing and the scars that are still there and he's sitting at Jesus's feet And he says to jesus i want to go with you i want to be your disciple i want to be one of your followers and jesus tells him no no i want you to go to the region of the decapolis the region of the ten cities and i want you to go to the people and tell them all that god has done for you why why turn this man into a missionary and not a disciple Why not take this guy whose life has been consumed by suffering for years, why send him to go do mission work and talk about all that God has done for him rather than being one of Jesus' disciples and followers? For me, I think the reason is that he bears the testimony of his suffering on his arms and on his body so that when people see him, they're shocked by all that he's been through. And they say, how are you, how did you go from the man who was so wounded to the man that you are today, clean and in your right mind? And he says, let me tell you about all that God has done for me. And that ministry is powerful because of the scars, because he hurt. But now he can tell the story of how he got those wounds and how he got healed, and how he now can tell the story of all that God has done for him. Is he glad that he got to go through it? No way. But does he have a story to tell now because God got him through it? Absolutely. Peter, on three occasions, denies that he knows Jesus Jesus is arrested and Peter's afraid that uh, he'll get arrested or some similar fate awaits for the other followers of this man who, who is now being accused of being a false king, a false messiah, when Peter has named him the true son of God already. But on that night, when three people ask him, aren't you one of this man's followers? Peter three times says, I do not know this man. Leave me alone. And the third time he does... A rooster crows, and he looks up, and Jesus is staring at him. And they lock eyes in one of those moments where someone that you love has been deeply wounded by your betrayal. And you know that you can't undo the hurt that you've done to them. And Peter is, is broken in this moment. He's broken and filled with shame and embarrassment at the betrayal that he's given to Jesus that he just hours before swore he would never even consider doing. He's now done, and he locks eyes with Jesus. And he's got the pain of that, and he's got the suffering that comes with that. And then he watches as Jesus dies on the cross with one of his last memories being seeing Peter's eyes after the betrayal. And so some days later, after Jesus gets out of the grave and Jesus comes to Peter and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? You can feel the weight of this. You can feel the heaviness as Peter knows that that what is happening is that his relationship with Jesus is being questioned as a result of the feeling when they locked eyes that night. Peter says, of course I do. I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And then he asks him a second time, do you love me? And he asks him a third time, do you love me? And the echo of the question, the third time being the echo of the third question, do you know this man? I do not know him. And now, Jesus, not only do I know, I know you, I love you. What Jesus is doing is he's healing Peter up after he's been broken. He's reminding him that the three promises of love is a healing part that comes after the three denials and the betrayals. And it comes with a job description. Peter doesn't get to live his own life anymore. Peter now is going to be the one who cares for Jesus' sheep. Out of his wounding and his healing come scars that give him a job description of watching over all the people that belong to Jesus. His life changes as a result of the failures of his past. His scars are redeemed, and Christianity becomes available to all people through Peter's ministry. You see, another time is coming when Peter's going to be given uh, three questions in a vision. He's in prayer on a rooftop, and a vision comes to him, and God is telling Peter it's time for the, the gospel to go out not just to the people of Israel, but to all the nations. And three times Peter goes, I don't think so. I'm not doing that. No, I don't don't do those things with those people. And then he comes out of the vision, and someone says, I need you to come talk to my master, who's a Roman centurion. And Peter says, okay, I'll go. Because he's denied Christ once, he's not going to deny God again. And so three times he's asked, and three times he denies, but as soon as he comes out of the vision, he knows, I'm not denying anymore. I'm going to take care of all the sheep. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and when God's Spirit goes into them, he says, why shouldn't you be baptized? And from that day forward, the kingdom of God is available to all people in all nations. It wasn't before. Why is it now? Because God took a man who had, had pain in his past and brokenness in his past, and he used him and his scarred faith to open the door to Christians of all nations through a ministry that Peter never asked for and never wanted. Paul is holding the coats of all of these legalistic religious Jews who are mad at Stephen's telling about who Jesus is and what he's done in the book of Acts. And Saul holds holds their coats while they stone Stephen to death. And Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, standing there looking down on him, pleased with his willingness to suffer on behalf of the cross. And Saul, who later becomes Paul, is looking on with pleasure also that Stephen is suffering. Not in the same way Jesus is. Paul would go around, uh, got permission and letters giving him the authority to go and find Christ followers in other cities around Jerusalem. And wherever he found them, he would throw them in jail or he would see that they were persecuted or he would uh, torture them and do everything he could to ruin their lives so that they would give up this nonsense about a resurrected Messiah. He's a persecutor of the followers of Jesus until one day he meets Jesus on the road. And from that day on, Paul doesn't be the, he's not the persecutor anymore. He becomes the persecuted. He becomes the one that's on the receiving end of the prison imprisonment, the receiving end of the stonings. He becomes one uh, who later would describe himself as the worst of all sinners, you can't help but think that every time that, that Paul was being persecuted because of his ministry and his faith, that he might have in the back of his thought head thought, I still deserve this for the times I did this to others. But he's forgiven. But it's out of his woundedness that he finds this new ministry and this ability to overcome the persecutions of others. His ability to minister to them, to forgive them, to preach to those who persecute him, to over and over again get stoned in a city and then go right back into the city and say, I'm not as dead as you thought I was, and I've got another thing I need to tell you about my sermon yesterday. There's multiple times where Paul's going to preach to crowds that want to kill him, and his friends have to say, really, really, please, 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 go somewhere else for at least a week. He's like, all right, but I'll be back, and I'll send letters. He can't stop. He can't stop doing everything that he can to spread the kingdom. And all of that comes out of the reality that he's got this troubled past. He's got this shame of the things he's done before. And God says, listen, you don't have to not do ministry because you used to do things wrong. Take what you did wrong and let that enrich and enhance your testimony to people who don't believe in me. When Paul would go and preach to Jews and they would say, listen, we just don't believe in this resurrected Messiah. He would go, yeah, same, until I met him, until he showed up on the road. And then I realized just how blind I was until he opened my eyes. And now I see. Isn't that a story? Over and over again, Jesus uh, is using and working through people who've got tough stuff in their past. God shows up in the valley of the shadow of death, and he meets us there, and he's present with us. And when we come out of it, we've got a story to tell. Do we come out with a limp? Sometimes. Do we come out with evidence of the hurt? Always in some form. Do we want God to take it away? We always do. Does God want us to hold on to it so that we can share it with others, so that they can know that he got us through it? I think he does. I think he does. Our scars break our pride and they give us the humility that Christ so often demonstrated. Our scars remind us that we need God and one another to get through this life. Self-reliance is broken in the in the valley and in the pit. Our scars teach us empathy and compassion so that we can go and minister to others who are still in their tough night. Author Frederick Buchner describes this scar-earned compassion this way. He says, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. And it's in the brokenness that we find this need to, to be with other broken people and to together find a wholeness that we can't have by ourselves. In his book, Wounded Healer, Henry Nowen writes, Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people. Whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, the main question is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed. The question is how can we put our woundedness into the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Undoubtedly, Jesus is the greatest of all the wounded healers. He was wounded on the cross for our sins and our transgressions. The reality is that God could have taken Jesus' scars away. I don't know if you ever thought about that. God could have taken Jesus' scars away after he died and was resurrected. He could have come back with hands that looked like nothing had ever punctured them. And we know that one of the reasons that he needed to still have the scars was because we struggled to believe that a man who was dead could get out of the grave. And so Thomas needed to touch the scars, to feel the wound in his side. But even beyond that, I can't help but think that, that Jesus with his scars is showing us that even in our wounding, we gain the power to bring God's glory and God's kingdom, breaking into a world that's so filled with suffering so that his scars say he suffered with us and for us. And we can learn how, as his followers, that we can make the same claim. Our wounds reveal that we follow a God who heals us, but leaves evidence of the struggles of the past. And I've got a story to tell from the scars I've received. So here at Northwest, we get to see this all the time. We go to a church where someone who used to live in homelessness goes to the homeless today and invites them to come in and have a home. We live at a church where people who needed hundreds of chances find ways to give others that one more second chance they need. We go to a church where people who have felt lost in grief work through that season and become guides for new grievers, helping them through the fog. If you ever go to our grief recovery class, one of the things you'll find is that before you can start teaching a grief recovery class, you have to tell them how you've grieved. You can't teach grief if you haven't walked through it before. So when I go in, I go in about once in each session. uh, Before I can talk to them about what the Bible says about grief, the first thing I have to do is tell them about my losses. Because if I haven't hurt, I don't have something to tell those who are hurting right now. And that it's through that giving God our own pain of the past that He uses it for His good glory. So a scarred faith, something we never ask for, but something that God can always use if we just give it to Him and trust Him to use it for His purpose, allowing Him to to use it to service of Him and in service of others. If you're here this morning... And you've never let the healer heal you up and use your scars for his purpose. If you're here this morning and you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ, uh, come forward this morning as we stand and sing.
2: I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me. I am weak and I need your love to God. Uh...
1: You need more time at camp.